0: You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. Hi, friends.
1: Welcome to the sixth episode of Crypt Times. On today's episode of Crypt Times, we had Jess Watkin. Jess is a blind and disabled scholar living in Toronto. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto Centre for Drama, Theatre and Performance Studies. Her research focuses on disabled artists and their creation processes, specifically in Canada. Jess is also an interdisciplinary artist, dramaturge, consultant, and educator. Jess Watkin is the type of person who makes every space she enters better. She's a true gift to her community, and we're excited to share her brilliance with
2: you. We're
1: recording.
2: Oh, okay, next. We're recording dot dot dot. We're loading the recording. <laughs> we're recording. I've
0: always got to confirm. Let's
1: think in.
2: Well, thank you, Jess, for uh, popping into this. Um, you are, I think we've already spoken about this, but we're currently recording the very first session of uh, Crip Times. Um, yeah, thank you for being here. Um, would you mind taking a moment to share in the, with the audience a little bit about who you are?
0: Yeah, um, so I I use many names it seems like, either Jess or Jessica, but uh, today I'll refer to myself as Jess because I think, you know, Yusuf and, and everyone knows me as Jess. Um, so I'm Jess Watkin, I use she, her, they, them pronouns, um, but all pronouns that are provided and, and used with respect and love are, are open and welcome to me. Um, I'm a white settler, a female presenting, female identifying human being. Uh, I am blind and disabled and I identify as an artist scholar at this point because I feel like both of those things inform each other. Um, So I'm currently doing my PhD at the Center for Drama, Theatre and Performance Studies at University of Toronto. I am uh, starting my fifth year that probably means nothing to a lot of people, um, but it means that I've been working on it for quite a long time. PhDs take time, um, especially if you can't see. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> also, if you're, also if you're an artist on uh, on top of everything. So um, you know, I, about a year ago, two years ago, um, I spoke with my supervisor who helps me through my PhD, and I said, you know, I'm I had been taking a break from practice in terms of an artist and had been only consulting predominantly, and it really wasn't as fulfilling as I wanted it to be in terms of a theater and just an interdisciplinary artist. And so I spoke with my supervisor and was like, it might take me a little bit longer to finish, but I think my work will be better if I actually practice art while I do my research. And it has been, it's so much more enjoyable um, because I get to also be extremely creative. And then also I have just found out that I get to also be creative in my uh, dissertation as well. Um, There's going to be a a secret creative chapter, um, which is very exciting. So I, I'm, really loving this balance of research and art right now. Um, I feel like I've kind of, ret- not not retired, but I've taken a little bit of a break from being on stage myself, um, but I do spend a lot of time backstage and pre in rehearsals and in, in uh, conversations with folks, uh, particularly disabled folks right now, dramaturging their pieces and, and working on um, accessibility design. Um, but if I am making art right now, I'm making a lot of uh, tactile textured art, so I'm, working a lot with materials, working a lot with yarn, working a lot with like scents. Um, But yeah, that's kind of like what I'm working on in terms of art. With my research, it kind of all informs each other. I'm working on disabled artists in Canada and how they create performance. So a lot about dramaturgy, a lot about uh, disability, uh, and actually a lot about softness, which is like my newest thing, which I'm very excited about, care and softness and how there is strength and softness uh, and that kind of comes out both literally and metaphorically in my work when it comes to like my rugs and my textiles yeah. um, but also in in my writing mm. and yeah that's kind of that's me in a nutshell I think
2: That's really fantastic I love that those new turns your your practice is taking um, that's that's cool it, it makes me think back to um, when we first met which was what 2017. At the Republic.
0: We met in Montreal We met in we met in Montreal.
2: Oh my yeah, we met in my third in, in uh yeah, yeah, in that yeah, weird cafe, cafe when it was
0: freezing cold. My phone died. It was so cold. But but yeah. we got to know each other better at the Republic.
2: Yes, yes. How did we how did that happen again? Was it that I was introduced to you or you were introduced to me? It was, it was because we were to say, disa- yeah, it was because we were disabled theater people. That was the reason. <laughs> but I forget who <laughs> initiated it.
0: People tend to do that, right? They're like, I know someone else who's disabled. Maybe you should know them. Um, I think it was because I had two friends at NTS at the time at the National Theatre School mm-hmm. who knew you, like they know me. And then when I was coming to Montreal, they were like, you should just like meet up with Yusuf. Like, he's working on that other podcast um, that you're working on about disabled artists. And yeah. I was like, I mean, sounds great. And I think originally we We were gonna meet with a bunch of people but then someone broke their foot and other people were in like practice for the shows and so it just ended up being you and I at a cafe and we were like all right let's talk about it and then I think it was like three months later um, you know completely differently we were in Ottawa for two weeks together just like (laughs) really getting a crash course literally in uh, disability arts in Canada.
2: Yeah. (laughs)
3: <laughs> so, if we're if we're talking about crypt friendship and how this came to be, this is Kayla speaking. By the way, um, Jess and I were Twitter friends, I believe, before we had ever met in person for quite some time. And I don't know if it was the first time we met in person, but the instance that stands out is we were at a workshop with um, Hannah Thompson in Toronto, across the table from one another, and um, we were supposed to be doing. Um, it audio description practice that's right and Jess of course is like such a firecracker and it's like okay well I'm actually blind so this is what's going on and I just knew we would be friends um when you said well my partner's a lighting designer which is really funny because I'm like that's nice honey but like I don't care because I can't see that
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah whenever he talks about sight lines I'm always like I couldn't care any less about sight lines (laughs) Um, which I think is actually a really great practice for him of like figuring out what does sight lines mean for people who can't see and I think that's something we actually have a discussion about. But yeah, that was our first time. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, we were like, Oh, I was like, Oh, you're behind these Twitter accounts. <laughs> <laughs> I know you. Yeah, that's me. That's mm-hmm. me. Oh, crip friendship.
1: So good. And now, this is Christina thinking. I feel like I need to tell the story of how Jess and I met, which was basically that I knew who she was through New Seth and other people who had met Jess in the Republic of Inclusion. And I was very much intimidated. And then the very first time we had a conversation was at Cripping the Arts uh, when you came up to me and said, Can you please log me into the Wi Fi? I'm blind, I can't do it. And I said, yeah, of course. Even though I had been told by everyone who worked at Cripping the Arts that I wasn't allowed to give away the Wi-Fi password <laughs> to anyone under any circumstances, um, and then we about a month after that spoke on a panel together mm-hmm. at the Festival of Original Theater, um, still very much intimidated by you, and then we co-facilitated a workshop. And I think after our first meeting, in which I actually had a conversation with you I told you I loved you um, <laughs> and now we've been best friends since then I
0: will say the intimidation was mutual and I think this happens in crip friendships where you like because like all of our legacies kind of you know supersede us like you know you hear titters of folks from different sides of the community and then when you like actually meet them in person you're like oh my god you're you're Christina like <laughs> Um, and I feel like we've crossed paths at Tangled before, but really, yeah, once we started talking earlier this year, or I guess it would have been last mm-hmm. year, um, you know, we, we really clicked in a way that, yeah. like, only access intimacy and, like, boss-ass bitch types could understand. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I love it. Oh my gosh, look yeah. at Look at all of our little crypt friends tendencies here. I love it. i I love it so much
3: i don't know if listeners know um if all listeners know what access intimacy is um maybe we could chat about that but jess and i have um, in developing our friendship incredible access intimacy um with just being blind she has amazing sense of direction um which i do not and i have a physical disability and like I'm very bad at walking down the street. So we have this beautiful symbiotic thing where if we like arms to walk down the street, um, I can see stuff for Jess, she can make sure I don't fall on my butt and trip over things. Um, so it's very, it's very beautiful. I don't know if you want to talk about what access intimacy means to you more broadly, um, for folks you might not know, but that's, that's one.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a great example of it. Is is kind of access intimacy, interdependence, and what Christine Kelly calls friend tendence, all merging together. So like access intimacy is where Mia Mingus, an amazing, uh, BIPOC, uh, Crip, scholar and just visionary um, from the states, uh, she has a blog called Leaving Evidence, um, and she defines access intimacy is that feeling of a quality when you meet somebody of them just getting what you might need and what they might need at the same time and that you don't really necessarily need to explain every little detail but they'll just kind of get what you need in terms of access but also in terms of like complaining about crip stuff which you know the four of us all have have been there and done that in terms of access and in terms of policy and in terms of the arts and so I feel like there's just like this knowledge this this instantaneous knowledge of like not just like what I need but that I might need something and that it's totally cool and that we can figure it out together. And I think that's kind of how I see front tendon as well, where it's like, we develop a relationship based on this really interesting intimacy that we can have that's rooted in our own needs and our own accessibilities, but also our own thoughts and opinions and and loves and and dislikes and how it all kind of, it's like not a very, it's a very very soft, learning the term soft, um, as I mentioned earlier, It's a very soft meaning it's not a very, you can't point to something and be like, well, this is how, this is access intimacy and this isn't. It's like, it's soft. It means that the edges are a little bit less defined. And I think that's a really cool part about being in crip friendship um, is this idea that you can just sit down with somebody and you don't have to then go and explain why you're angry. They can just be like, oh yeah. And I felt that a lot with both Yusuf and and Christina as well um, in terms of like, moving forward as young folks in Canada trying to navigate being disabled and like finding jobs and navigating the winter and (laughs) all kinds of different stuff. So I think it's been it's been a really interesting crash course of lived experience with all of this.
2: That's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. I I also think it or rather I wonder um, how does that access intimacy for you play over into your role as a, as a dramaturge and trying to, um, you know, bring accessible dramaturgy into the mainstream. Um, for our listeners who don't know, or who may not be connected to the theater world so much, dramatur- a dramaturge is someone um, who either does historical research on a piece of theater or um, in Canada, it's more often related to um, the structure of a theater piece and someone who acts as that outside eye. Um, for it. Uh, no pun intended. Um,
0: oh, pun intended. pun intended. Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, but so how does that access intimacy for you spill over into like what accessible dramaturgy is then?
0: I think that Dramaturgy is so similarly soft in the way that access intimacy is, right? There's no real clear edge where dramaturgy begins and ends. Um, I feel like I was in my master's in 2015 and and we had a full cohort of people who were like, hi, can we have someone come in and define dramaturgy for us? And they had like multiple people come in and from different countries and different perspectives. And all of them had different definitions of what dramaturgy is. Um, And so thinking through exactly what you said, Yusuf, thinking about in Canada, the way that we, we conceptualize um, the way that we conceptualize dramaturgy is, yeah, it's like um, the person, one of the person, people in the room who is constantly thinking about the structure, the puzzle pieces, and how the whole piece fits together. And so I mean, when it comes to like working with disability and dramaturgy, I think access intimacy is actually the perfect intervention into how, and I'm putting air quotes around normative, normative dramaturgy works. So people who are non-disabled dramaturging, because, you know, like I've dramaturged before where I just get a script and I go through the script and I ask questions. Like that seems to be my normative way of moving through dramaturgy with folks who are possibly non-disabled. And, you know, I ask questions like, what do you mean here? Or I don't understand what this moment is, or is this moment meant to be this or this? Whereas like my experiences of disability dramaturging or accessible dramaturgy has been a lot of, I sit down with the artist, they send me a script and then I sit down with the artist and I ask questions that are not just about the script, but are about, okay, you as performer, what do you feel comfortable with here? Like one of the first examples I can think of is um, Afira Kalaf and I just recently um, culminated our, our friendship, not our friendship, our, our relationship moving through disability dramaturgy with the Next Stage Festival that happened earlier this year in 2020. And we started the, the dramaturgy in August of 2019. And we sat down, and I remember the first thing that she asked me was, how long should I say the play is? And I was like, how, what is the maximum amount of time that you can say?" And she said, an hour. And I said, okay, say that. And she was like, but I don't think the piece is going to be an hour. And I was like, neither do I. But because Afira is, is disabled and uses a massive power wheelchair, and it will be winter when we perform, and she has chronic migraines and chronic pain, I was like, why don't we just book it into the, embed it literally into the whole, like, what the next stage will think about our play is that you will be there for an hour and we will take up an hour worth of time. So, that means if the play is only half an hour long and you need to start late because your wheels are wet, which is a reality <laughs> for wheelchair users, mm. there, the day that we did our tech run actually in the theater space, she had to have a wheelchair technician come in and replace a wheel on stage during mm. the show. Wow. So, like, we're glad that we built in that lateness because, or that you know, time flexibility. And like, it's, it's down to those many, and like, it came in there. That was the very beginning of the process. Once we were in rehearsal, normally I don't see a rehearsal or I don't see many rehearsals as a dramaturg, mm-hmm. but for disability dramaturgy, I'm there for most. And I was there in the rehearsal going, okay, where is your break? How do you feel in this moment? So it wasn't necessary. it was textual mm-hmm. and it is narrative driven, but I find like, for me as a disability dramaturg, my, my job, my role is an advocate to remind her that remind the performer and creator that you are also human and i think there's something about there's something about theater theater um, theater in the normative sense that's like you need need to shed your needs and shed your human fluctuations for the the show must go on you know like that mentality of of um if you're sick like how many times about have I in high school, for example, gone on stage with chloroseptic spray sprayed into my throat because I couldn't, like, my it was in the winter or I was very sick, but because the show must go on, I still go out there. My role as a disability dramaturg is to go, if you're sick, maybe we shouldn't go on.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Or if mm-hmm. you're sick, maybe you only do half the show and we build in with the director in rehearsal plan A, B, C, and D. And uh, we have a narrative that works for this for 20 minutes. We have a narrative works that works for 45 minutes and it's hard, it's hard mm-hmm. work and it takes a lot of time, but it's my, my role as a disability dramaturg to make sure that not only am I the outside eye for the audience, but I'm in the, I'm the inside eye mm-hmm. <laughs> for the performers. Mm-hmm. And, and I have learned this from disability, like from my research, actually, you know, researching Boys and Chairs, for example, the Boys and Chairs Collective, mm-hmm. um, they do very short, short runs because they're three wheelchair using men who can't perform a seven, you know a full seven show run week yeah. or whatever with one day off. Like that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And when we were doing next stage with Ophira, it was really thinking through, okay, like we want to get you on stage as much as possible, but we don't want you to blow, f- blow a fuse. Mm. <laughs> um, right. so how can we build the show? to actually respond to those needs um, of not blowing a fuse. And so that, that's the best example I can have in terms of, and, and why I was able, I guess, going back to Access Intimacy, is why I'm able to know those things is that, you know, I, I am trained in the performance and I am, I've been on stage for seven show runs and I have done the research and done all of this work. And also Ophira and I are quite close. Um, and I think there is that, a part of that, you know, I, I mean, I, I do also disability dramaturg with folks who aren't close friends, but it's that access intimacy of people knowing that I will, I don't want to say take care of them because hair flip, I'm so good, but it's more about, I will (laughs) also (laughs) also that, but also that too, but it's more so about they can focus on the work and I can focus on the structures and support structures around them so Mm. that they can do the work to the best of their ability at that time and I think that was a really unique and beautiful relationship that Ophir and I had and you know I've been doing it for a couple other artists since then and I think that like I don't know I, I was talking to a couple of different disabled um, artist friends in Canada and I don't know if there's anybody necessarily doing this from an informed space right now and so it's kind of fun to be creating something kind of cool and new um, and a new role but I also just like I don't know. It's I think that's another part of the access intimacy for me or the friend the friend bit, the crip friendship, which is like I don't want anybody to have to burn out yeah. in the same mm. way that I have before in theater school or that I have before in in academia is that I I have that not lived experience that lived knowledge of what it feels like to burn out because I've gone past my capacity.
2: Yeah. That's that's awesome and it's it's cool how um it seems like it's a, it's an even deeper dive into like the core concept of dramaturgy and that you're actually taking apart like the traditional or colonial structures that um, Western theater exists in, Um, which is, you know, no matter how much like I like as a love, as, as an actor can love, uh, you know, being on stage, I can still admit that the, the actual structure of theater, of, of theaters, is often um, an oppressive environment with how much they make you work and what's expected um, in terms of time isn't necessarily healthy. So that breaking down is brilliant. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and even even more so from like the structure of like performing, also down to the building, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, part of my advocacy is making sure that not just Ophira, who's the disabled, you know, performer, main performer, not the main creator, but also like, I'm, I can't see, I'm blind. So I need to have a space in the audience that's close enough to Ophira so that she can feel safe and comforted, but I can see, but I'm not taking up space. Like it's, it's a constant negotiation mm-hmm. um, and renegotiation. And I think, I think it's radical because people are really set in their ways (laughs) when it comes to art practice Mm -hmm. um you know an art gallery is an art gallery and like I was in a gallery last March um and I you know asked if my piece could be put at wheelchair height Um, Mm -hmm. and it was funny how much the accessibility built into my pieces were much more interesting to people than like the Narrative behind those pieces, and I'm just like, I feel like because it's such a disruption into this normal space that we have these expectations set up, that people get really either excited or confused, and that's happened a lot, especially when I disability dramaturg pieces where we do something extremely disruptive, either on the stage or in 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 a gallery or in a performance space, in a in an education space. The amount of times that I've done teaching and I've you know I stand up at when I train, I'm, I'm looking at Kayla right now being like, when I stand up and train for relaxed performance and I'm like, I'm not going to visually engage with you. So I don't care if you look at me in a, in a, you know, a lecture hall yes. at York university, yes. like I can't see people's reactions, but I wonder, <laughs> you know, what they think. And I do that in every classroom I'm in. And so, you know, I also find that being disabled in these normative spaces is a disruption in itself, especially when we don't conform to the ways in which other people expect us to be, um and being proud of that and confident is very difficult and i think that's why as a disability dramaturg that's also my role is when is second guessing when the creator's second guessing the accessible choices we're making i'm there to go no i will fight for this though you focus on being the performer i will talk with i will make sure this happens and i'm i will give them the receipts i will give them <laughs> the research i will i will fight for this because because that's, you know, it's a part of being radical is, is being confident. And that's hard when it's so brand new and you get a lot of pushback. So I, I find it very exciting personally.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. That sort of shocked or confused reaction to the disruption comes through in relaxed performance as well. Um, which I think Oh, there's a lot of misconception that relaxed performance is only for disability identified folk. Um, and then if you've never encountered those disruptions before in those spaces, people are like, what, what, what do you, what do you mean that the house lights are going to stay up a bit? Or what do you mean this person who can't see me is the one telling me how this is going to go? Or this, you know, person limping into the room is the one who, is going to navigate this way of doing performance. It's um, it's powerful to watch when the shift happens because I've, I've seen that um, and, and you've been there too, Jess, in those spaces where we've facilitated relaxed performance sessions before where initially people can be so um, resistant and thinking that implementing access will take something away from the magic of theater or whatever it might be. And then sometimes there's a, a light bulb moment where they see what it actually opens up and it's just like, yes.
0: <laughs> I also think, and, and something along those lines is that, you know, these are not new practices. Um, keeping the house lights up, people being able to eat in the theater. I mean, people have been doing this for hundreds of years um, in different cultures, different places in the world for different reasons. But I think what's exciting about <clears throat> calling it disability aesthetic or accessibility aesthetic or accessibility design is that okay you're taking a thing that maybe already exists we're not reinventing the wheel here right like all of the things when it comes to relaxed performance or dramaturgy or creating an accessible performance it's not really brand new. I mean, we're putting a ramp yeah. on a stage. It would be really great if we were creating brand new things. And I'm very here for that. But right now it seems like in North America, we're not quite ready to be revolutioni- revolutionizing the theater entirely or the art <laughs> spaces entirely. We will cheer but, when
3: there's a ramp at the Oscars at the Tonys and- well, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Or that there isn't a raised stage at all. Yes. Um, that's yes. that's even what I mean in terms of radical. Like I don't mean a ramp. I mean, the, the space is designed by a, a crip, a crip f- person. But I think where we're at is where um, where calling it accessibility design and calling it accessibility aesthetic is where we're getting into disability justice, is where we're getting into Mm -hmm. disability politics, is where we're getting into the political framing. And so it's not just, oh, isn't it cool that the house lights are up? It's the house lights are up for this reason. And I think that's something that... I want to see more actually in art spaces is I want to see more transparency and, and like, like obviousness to your, and I think Tangle does this quite well. And I think other galleries and, and other theaters do this quite well where they're like, we're doing ASL interpretation. Look at these ASL interpreters. That means deaf people are here. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, we're doing audio description. That means blind. I mean, it never happens. Trust me <laughs> the amount of times that I've consulted for audio description and then I get dirty looks for wearing a headset in the theater space because no one said to the other people in the room that audio descriptions happening. Like I'm ready for people to be like, "There are disabled people here, and they are engaging with the performance as well."
3: This um, <laughs> blind girl is not on a business call during the show. I
0: oh my gosh, you. <laughs> there is a theater in the city that I will not name that I have seen a relaxed or not a relaxed performance, an audio described performance that had me whole like have headphones over the ear headphones in the audience like heavy big like tech headphones and i was like i can't even hear the the other audience members let alone the play like this is not and and also (laughs) it's very obvious that there are two blind girls sitting in the front wearing these big headphones who are having a different experience like that's cool i'm into that but also i'm more into the transparency about it to be like Mm -hmm. This theatre supports disabled people so much that we're going to talk about it, obviously. And I think Theatre Pass Mariah does that a little bit now that, you know, um, I mean, Andy mm-hmm. McKim started that, the artistic director, who's just who's just left, and I had a lot of conversations with him about relaxed performance in particular, and and post show discussions, and then moving forward with Marjorie Chan, I think she's um, definitely understanding of that transparency that we're looking for because disability doesn't need to be covered up in the arts. That's and and when I say disability, I also mean like accessibility. You don't need to like mm-hmm. hide yeah. the accessibility and the accessible things that you're doing away. It actually part of disability justice to be very obvious about it. I mean, that's the big thing about anybody who ever asks me about being accessible and having a be- accessible events. How do I make it accessible? I'm like, I don't know, just say what you do and don't have. Put that on the Facebook event, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. So there was my rant about that. <laughs> <laughs> I got really into that. Thanks, guys. It's a good one. <laughs> it's good, it's good, it's
3: good. Yeah. Um, speaking of disruption, I see a book behind you on your shelf um i see it place of pride jess is pointing to this book jess would you like to tell our (laughs) listeners why i'm why i'm gesturing to this book
0: (laughs) um so you're gesturing to a book behind me and i think i think you're gesturing to it because i i'm currently coming out with lots of publications and a lot of you can find my stuff a everywhere just google me no I'm just kidding I said that to my brother (laughs) recently this is like totally an anecdote but I said it to my brother who's 19 years old and he googled me and he was like oh my gosh Jess you have so many publications I was like yeah I don't tell you about everything um also because like he's 19 like is he gonna care about (laughs) so this book is called women in pop culture in Canada it's edited by Lane Zisman Newman who's a good colleague and friend of mine um and it's essentially a ton of critiques of, of different pop culture in Canada, in terms of feminism and queerness. And my chapter is about a podcast. It's so actually, I don't think I talked about this too. Oh, I have talked about it with all of you, but like, it's kind of funny that I'm talking about it on a podcast, talking about good pod- podcasting politics, um, especially when interviewing disabled women um, in this group, um, in this book. So um, I'm really loving, I'm really loving writing accessibly in terms of my scholarship. Um, I think being an artist and interested in disability politics has really helped that. Um, But also, I'm usually the only crip in any book anthology. Now, that's not super true when it comes to writing about all of disabled things. But, you know, in an anthology like this, Women in Pop Culture in Canada, I am... I am probably I haven't read through all of them um, but uh, they i i looking at the table of contents, it looks like i'm I'm the disabled you know representation Ooh. there, which is extremely you know valuable and exciting and um I do have a book project on the go right now called interdependent magic um Disability Performances in Canada. <laughs> Um, which is going to be the first anthology of disability plays mm-hmm. in yes. Canada. There is, There are a couple in North America and they, and they do, in like the United States, they do talk a little bit about Canadian plays, but it's like Creeps by David Freeman, which we may or may not know um, is like 50 years old <laughs> <laughs> and like maybe has some problems in itself. So this book I'm working on um, is all contemporary artists, all scripts that are going to be created like specifically for this anthology. They're all shows that I've seen for the most part. We have representation of uh, a swath of disabilities. I, I you know, trying to curate, and I'm sure curators understand this, but like trying to curate air quotes diversely, like meaning to curate without a checklist, but to still hit as many, you know, different disabilities and different ethnicities different cultures different places in this country because canada's so flipping big trying to find you know representation not just from toronto but also from indigenous cultures and also from folks who are neurodivergent like it's been it's been a journey um to get there and uh i'm super excited with how it's turning out right now um it's going to be coming out next october 2021 with playwrights canada press um but it has been such an honor to to do this kind of curation and editing and and yusuf's going to be writing an introduction for one of the plays and and i'm just <laughs> i'm so excited about it i i'm still trying to figure out how to describe interdependence for the book right now it's um you know little sneak peek the first opening of the introduction that i'm writing has a poem that i'm writing myself about interdependence because there was no other way to describe it's so ho- it's such a again a soft concept of being like where does interdependence start and it end um but i figured with the varying disability communities um, disability arts communities in this country trying to capture that is is an interdependent process in itself. So I'm I'm super excited about it. And I really just wanted a book that, you know, I went through theater school. I went through, um, you know, my undergrad in a BA department with theater and English as my majors. And I was asked, what could you do for theater as a blind disabled Uh, person? And I kept asking for disabled plays and no one could hand Mm -hmm. me anything, probably other than Creeps by David Freeman. Um, so, yeah, right. So I am super excited because, you know, I started this academic journey, hoping to make change for my communities, specifically disabled people in the arts. And I think this book is the first kind of tangible step that I can be like, well, now there's no theater educators who can go, like, there's a book here now. Like you can't full chock full of interviews and actual plays that you can study in a classroom of Disabled experience voices, everything, and so there's lots of intersections in there. I'm really excited about the different, uh, you know, I, I, Chris Dodd's play Deafy is going to be in there, which is super exciting, um, and Alex Balmer's first play Smudge is going to be in there, and so, you know, it's just it's just one of those things that I'm like, I get to be with a bunch of my friends, <laughs> um, which sounds a little bit like nepotism, but it isn't because for the most part, you know, it's not a huge community disability arts in Canada. And I think it's just, it's going to be one of those things that I can look at and be like, okay, I feel like I've actually left something for this community that feels real. And that will people can't ignore us anymore, especially in I'm thinking theater institutions that are doing education. Um, I mean, I guess theater creators as well. But I, I think I'm more thinking about education, just because that's where we need the most advocacy right now. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited.
3: We're excited too. going to like and subscribe by which yeah. I mean pre-order, uh, whenever I can.
0: Yeah. I'll let y'all know.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and like, I'll, I'll definitely say like, I, I think I've seen most of the plays that are going to be published in it and the, it's such a great range of work. And especially, you know, as you're saying about like the diversity, you know, I always come back to you that like the crip community, we can't help but be diverse because, you know, it's not like, you know, one group is gonna be more crip than the others. It's a a really, it's like a random selection of people from all these different backgrounds. And you being able to take that and acknowledge that there's such a massive range of voices out there um, within the community and including that. I think it's going to be a really, really special book. And I'm not just saying that because I'm writing an introduction.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I also think the other thing that I'm, I'm also really excited about it is that there is this idea that... Um, that that there is representation. So I, I won't go in too much into it, but I have an interview that's hopefully going to be in the book. We have to still figure things out. That's about, you know, Indigenous disability and Indigenous disabled folks and, and how the disability, disability arts culture and, and communities in Canada aren't as diverse as we as we think they are because of colonization and because of Um, different racist uh, barriers to especially indigenous folks to get into training institutions and have those opportunities and so I'm really hoping to build some relationship there as well um, with some guidance from the indigenous folks who are in the book because I feel like it's such a priority for me as a white settler to to do this reconciliation within publication even you know I, I spoke with one of the artists about publishing a play and he was like I don't feel comfortable having it published in this anthology in terms of like indigenous ownership and, and governance. And I was like, I, I hear that. Like, I agree. And, you know, we had this also dis- similar discussion with um, Deffy with Chris Dodd, especially about um, printing in English and publishing in English mm-hmm. because, it's predominantly in ASL. And so I'm right now really thinking through about images and how we can maybe take a living language like ASL and move it into a publication. So it's also brought up these really interesting discussions about ownership and publication and and Canada, air quotes Canada, what we know now is Canada, um, and how to reconcile between all these different um, things. It's actually been such a Pun intended. Eye-opening <laughs> experience. <laughs> Single eye, because I only have one. Um, eye-opening <laughs> experience um, because I'm li- because I'm literally getting a crash course in in these ethics and protocols and and trying to navigate with an you know publisher and being like, okay, well it's going to take crip time. Like it takes time to do all this stuff. And, and so it's been, you know, Playwrights Canada Press has been so welcoming and we're really talking about, you know, accessible formats as well and publishing in accessible formats from the get go. And it's just been a really great experience. Um, Now with the deadlines in September 1st, so maybe in a month I'll be like, I don't know. um, Because I get so nervous when I like, I also have this thing where I'm like, Oh no, if I publish something, I can never change it again. Mm. Um, Like what if my, thoughts change and what if things change so i'm also kind of aware of that as well and, and I'm, I'm excited nervous you know <laughs> yeah you
1: mentioned um being an undergrad in 2015 what are some of the biggest changes that you've been able to witness since 2015 as an undergrad to now in 2020 as a phd candidate in theater especially in like disability theater accessible theater disability dramaturgy,
0: just the justice within theater in Canada? Yeah, I mean, I actually graduated in 2014, but I think that I have unders- I understood it more post undergrad. And when I say it, I mean everything. Um, I went to my undergrad in Guelph, Ontario at the University of Guelph. Tiny, tiny little program. We had 35 graduates. Um, I was obviously the only disabled person, although there are, you know, disability, there weren't as many disclosures as maybe I I had to disclose because, you know, I could fall off a stage. Um, I think what I've learned the most when I graduated, I had such a tumultuous, uh, undergrad because I originally started as a minor in theater and was a major in English which is ironic because I can't read books with my eyes. So I read like on average 15 books with my ears per term. Um, So that's like a lot. Um, And so by about halfway through my journey in my undergrad, I was really struggling to, make my own route through disability. I didn't know a lot of disabled folks. I wasn't in the disability justice community. I was in the blind community. I was, I was on committees for disability, but I wasn't really with advocates or I wasn't reading the scholarship or I wasn't seeing disability plays essentially. And so all I knew was this theater world that I, I was tangentially getting exposed to. And then I took a trip to England. I took four months in England, my third year. It's the first time I've been on a plane by myself. And it's the first time that I've been outside on a trip without my family since I had been blind because I only went blind about a year before I went to undergrad. So I learned, again, I keep talking about crash courses, but like really got a really fast, quick and dirty way of being disabled in the world outside of my cushy small town, uh, Ontario vibe. And I came back to Canada after that four months, a new human. I wanted to take acting. Mm-hmm. Um, I took my first acting course that, <laughs> that spring. Um, I wanted to be a theater major immediately. And I wonder about, again, pun intended, London opening my eyes in a certain way to the possibility beyond what I was being told by, you know, I'd just gone blind before I started my undergrad. So I wasn't, people were scared. Like my parents were like, my family was very much like, do everything safely, you know, don't take too many risks. And when I wanted to go to England, they all supported me, obviously, but they were like very scared and hesitant. And when coming back upon coming back and seeing my confidence and seeing my excitement for live theater that could do stuff. Like I had seen shows in London that made me feel and do things. And so coming back, I was like, I want to do that. And I got woke up to dramaturgy and playwriting. I really, really delved deep into it after that. And I still, in my undergrad, was in this bubble in Guelph of, like, not really knowing any community. And then I started working more for the Canadian National Institute for the Blind, and I started working more in a leadership capacity there. And by the time I moved to Toronto, I was extremely, like, equipped, but also I had never lived in a big town before. And I think the big city really, the big cities, that was it, like London, England, and coming into Toronto, and feeling the independence and I say independence intentionally because when I first 2015 when I came to Toronto, I was alone. I knew nobody. The only people I knew were like my friends from the CNIB, which were like people who technically taught me things. So like they were I was their client. Um, so I didn't really have it. Like they're <laughs> lovely people, but they're not like friends, right? And so you know until I think a year in, until I understood theory more, until I understood the the art vibe here in Toronto. I felt really alone and you know, I had gone through this undergrad where I'd carved a path. Like I had really, you know, and I remember saying at graduation, being like, I made changes in this program. So no one has to go through the pain that I had to go through, um, to get there to the, the inaccessibility that I had to go through. And I still say that. Um, mm-hmm. But then coming to Toronto and being really opened up to my own path with Activism, my own path with art. Um, I never felt pressured to perform anything before I was ready. Um, I've had I've had offers from people being like, "This could start your acting career," and I'm like, "I don't know if I want to be an actor." And I think those decisions early on in my Toronto journey um, really helped me get to what essentially brought me into disability justice, which was I was having a I was having a time. It was in my first it was around 2017 it was like my first second year of my phd and i was doing some activism and i can't go into it too deeply but i was doing some activism and i was getting some pushback some 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 not very good um responses to the activism i was doing and i it was about it was feminism it was you know without again going too much into it um it was a lot about we believe vi- we believe victims we believe survivors that kind of thing and it got to a point where I went into my department and I said, look, there is a disability leadership summit happening at Banff, at the Banff Center. And can this be a research trip? Can I go and it be a research trip? And the, the truth behind those questions was, I need to get out of this fucking place. I need to leave here now. And I need to be in the mountains. It was like February. I was like, I need to be in the mountains. I need to be alone and I need to be with other Crips. I just need to go. And I went and I met Jan Derbyshire and I met Michelle DiCognitez and I met Ricky Entz and I met Emma Campbell and I met some really incredible, like Lois Brown and some really incredible disability artists. And I'm getting tingles thinking about it. Like it changed my life um, being there. Um, It brought me back to feeling like myself. I felt playful. I wrote a a monologue about um, the Great Lakes (laughs) Because I was like, I'm in Alberta, and like they don't know about the Great Lakes, so I'm gonna tell them about like my house, my homes, which is like like here on Ontario. Like it- anyway, I'm really nerdy, um, and they loved it. And I met Sarah Garten Stanley and Cyrus Marcus Ware, and they invited me to the Republic of Inclusion. And that time in BAMP, I can't remember what it was called. I always call it like the BAMP Center Disability Arts Leadership Summit or whatever and it taught me about co-creation and interdependence. And I was like, oh, like I, uh, oh, everything clicked. Um, I think Jan Dermishire, who I believe goes by JD now, um, felt, it felt like having a mum. like she, you know, they would come over and be like, it's so nice. It's really nice to see you today. And I was like, Oh, it's really nice to see you too. And like, they, to me, are an elder in our community. Um, I'm not sure if we, how we feel about disability elders Mm -hmm. in Canada yet, because Jan's not young, like she's not old, right? She's not, you know, she's not an elder in that grandparent (laughs) sense, right? But she made me feel at home and... I felt like my voice mattered. And the second that happened, even though I wasn't a professional artist, as you know, the Canada Council might say, or I wasn't, you know, I didn't have any public showings that all the things that make you a professional artist. Mm -hmm. Like I was new, brand new baby. Um, But having someone be like, you're so welcome here was just like, again, still brings me tingles. Mm -hmm. And every time I see JD, I'm like, just so grateful for the care and compassion Mm -hmm. that they showed me and i think like that's something you know post republic of inclusion which was an intense time as Yusuf can say um (laughs) to say the very least Mm -hmm. understatement um but since then it's been a priority for me for anybody i meet now in our community is to immediately try and make them feel at ease and welcome because i remember that feeling of being Mm -hmm. so burnt out by activism and so burnt out by the systems that I was dealing with and feeling so alone in Toronto and then coming to Banff and having people be like, you belong here. Even if I haven't, like I say, been in a gallery or been on a show. And so, but I was making art and they were like, of course, you're an artist. And like that for me brought me into disability justice. It brought me into activism in terms of cripness. It brought me into, (laughs) it was (laughs) interdependent magic. Like it really felt like magic. And I am, Mm, I honestly cannot be more grateful to that that weekend in the mountains. I cannot be more grateful to the people that I met at the Republic. And I think the opportunities that I've been given, you know, I'm extremely privileged and extremely grateful, but I also am like very knowledgeable that like, Mm -hmm. I also worked really hard for this. And I, I Mm -hmm. always try to give back to this community, new artists, emerging artists, children, you know, children, people in school, because I'm like, yeah. it could make a huge difference just to be like, you belong here.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And I think we've seen you do that. At least I can say I've seen you do that since I first same. met you. Um, same. So you guys as, make me cry. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Yay! Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yay! You the first episode.
2: <laughs> um, so we're coming close up on our time here. But um, before we get to the wrap up, there's one more question that I really want to hit on. Um, so thinking about like all the things that you've learned, like as an accessible drama as like doing accessible dramaturgy, um, as an artist, as a person, as someone who just goes out and sees theater, um, when you dream of the future of performance, what do you envision?
0: I dream of a performance feature that is anti-capitalist, that has no barrier for access to see the show. I don't want to have to spend $75 to get into an an incredible show that I need to see. I want to be able to either pay what I can, pay what I think, which are two, or I have this dream of like, exchange where it's like here's a ticket to my show can I come see your show um that's my dream in terms of capitalism (laughs) I have a dream that that disabled people are not seen as disruptions in theater spaces ever meaning like all of the chairs in the theater are removable and all of the Places in the theater space, audience space, are accessible for any mobility device user and any person. I dream of a space that is decolonized in a way that feels, I don't want to say natural, but feels right to the people that that affects. I don't want it to feel stagnant or weird when we talk about the land that we're on and how we're not invited there. I think that that is starting to happen, but I think that it needs to happen everywhere and all the time. Um, I think that the idea of feeling, I I don't think we need to feel safe in a theater space in terms of like, you may Mm. not get offended. I think you need to feel safe in terms of your physicality, but I think I want to continue and push for challenge and also joy and enjoyment because I think there's like a balance between shit that like, deals with the hard stuff and then shit that makes you feel good because I think people like you know I don't always want to see a play that's going to make me cry I do Mm. a lot of the time I really do and like (laughs) I you know I could write tell you on one hand the shows that really have gotten to my soul in this city that for the past five years that I've lived here I dream of a performance culture that is rooted in lifting people up and critique that is not based in malice or, um, ignorance, but it is built, it is rooted in making this an industry better. And so I think that is anti-capitalist. I think that's anti-ableist. Um, I think that's anti-racist. Um, and that might, and I like, that's going to take some time. <laughs> um, I don't think it's actually possible to do, um, in the way that we understand economy and the way that we understand each other right now but the dream of feeling like that feeling of welcome that I felt with JD um, many moons ago where I felt like I was so terrified to walk into that space, which I am a lot of the time in the theater. Where am I going to sit? Am I going to sit on someone's lap today? Am I going to find my signed seat? Those fears wouldn't be there because I would feel welcome and I wouldn't feel nobody, not just me, Anybody could feel comfortable walking into a space and asking for something and and that being received. And that can be disability and that can be in terms of class privilege and that can be in terms of anxiety and mental illness. Like I think there, there are lots of ways to make people feel welcome. And and that's the theater that I dream about. And I would also love to just see less white Mm -hmm. cis able stories. On, on the stage, <laughs> I would really like to see different stories of enjoyment and challenge, because I think a lot of the times um, in the way that Kahoot Theater describes um, theater artists from the margins or from the edge, a lot of the times those, so like marginalized folks, <laughs> people who are marginalized tend to stereotypically, the shows are all very sad and deep and gloomy and just, you know, they say, they tell us the stories of hardship but there also is a fuck ton of joy here. And you know I wanna see joyful mm-hmm. stories. I wanna see celebration and pride. And I think that it's gonna, again, take a big turn and a big movement past what we're dealing with now. But I think there is so much capacity for our, our communities to, to demonstrate and perform joy that I, I ha- I'm hopeful.
3: Times is presented as a part of the Wheels on the Ground podcast network. This podcast is produced by us and supported by Tangled Art plus Disability and Bodies in Translation. If you enjoyed this interview, we release new episodes every Monday, wherever good podcasts can be found.